0: Past Ball Show. Brought to you by John
1: What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f-
0: put that in. I don't f- So the Tribe drops its third straight of this trip, six to one to
2: the Rangers, four For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit.
0: Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe. it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer, the winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, the the winner winner is he's
2: out. Yes, Grant. Grant is out. Look, look at this. Brad is out. And the team is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball. This can run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the 100 years of the present time
0: sell the team Oh, yes. Welcome back. This is the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, this is John Piele. reminder, anything we go over today, we keep this program interactive. Just tweet at me at John underscore Piele. I've been doing a great job of making all the replies in to everybody that's had something to say in regards to uh, topics, uh, baseball related, anything going on. I'm always happy to, to interact with you guys and uh, talk about what you guys are thinking as opposed to what I am thinking. Great first hour as we had the opportunity to speak with. Brett Saberhagen, uh, two-time Cy Young Award winner, and, of course, Bob Kendrick of the Negro Leagues Museum. And two very good spots. Hopefully, hopefully you guys, in a replay, get a chance to uh, listen to them if you haven't already. But obviously we're getting on to baseball, and you get a chance to hear me talk a little bit. A lot of different things going on that I, I find very interesting. you got some small things going on, as well as some of the stuff that I've been talking about in my bases Empty blog, which you check out uh, anytime on johnpiele.com. Um, a couple of different things going on. You got the Minnesota Twins in a position that are actually they're actually overachieving to a point. They're hanging around the 500 mark. They're a little bit under, but they're still considered to be sellers this year. They're looking to kind of get themselves in a position where guys like uh, Kyle Gibson, a right hand pitcher, and Byron Buxton, an outfielder, are getting themselves all set to come in. So it makes sense that, you know, these these players are going to be out there, they're going to be on the market. You heard at the beginning of the season, uh, whether it's a Mike or some people in the New York area, suggesting that the Yankees should go after Justin Morneau. No. And uh, listen, I think that's still a possibility. You look at the fact that Mark Teixeira is probably out for the season. Uh, you know that they're going to be in a situation where you don't know where you're going to expect at, at Alex Rodriguez. Kevin Euclid may be done as well. So the Yankees, as they're obviously making the, the push to get to the postseason again, which is a regularity. For them, uh, may, may be considering this. And I think the question is what is the price? What is Minnesota looking to land in a deal for Justin Morneau as well as a Josh Willingham? You could go to the other side of New York and say that, hey, it may be a distinct possibility that the Mets could be interested in Willingham. Now you look at Willingham's a guy that puts up home run numbers. He's a guy that Sandy Alderson has always liked, the type of player, home run hitter, a, a guy that you could put in the middle of the order. And he's also signed through next year, which makes Willingham probably a little more intriguing for uh, you know the New York Mets standpoint. But the question, like I just said, with the Yankees and Morneau, is what is the price going to be for one of these two players? And I do think the Twins have every interest in holding out. And you know what can benefit them a little bit is the fact that they. they they may not necessarily be looking to trade these guys to just contenders, which makes the July 31st trading deadline maybe not as important. Because obviously, to, you know, to obtain waivers on a player, you obviously need to uh, to have them have them on your team. You know, after July 31st, so so prior prior to that, it obviously makes sense for a team that's looking to compete, a team that's looking to make the postseason, to get a guy on your team before then. And of course, before the end of August is when uh, players uh, have the opportunity to be on the on the postseason roster, whether a team makes it. So any deals made made in September for players that are not eligible for postseason season play. But with the Twins in this situation, they may not be out there, this typical seller team that says we have to make all these trades by July 31st or at the very latest August 31st you know so you look at that and I think the twins have some flexibility I think they have the ability to get what they want for these players and I also think that if the twins end up spending the rest of the season with Justin Morneau who is a free agent and Josh Willingham on their team I, I don't think I don't think they're gonna mind they got Willingham for one more season Morneau as a free agent is gonna obviously uh get them a draft pick of whatever team that they end up he ends up signing with they'll offer him arbitration and they'll get the opportunity to uh to, to uh, offer offer them whatever the uh, the qualifying offer is, probably about $15 million. So you're looking at a situation where the Twins probably don't have to go out there and make this this move. So it's something interesting to think about. Moving on, we got some stuff going on. I want to get into, before we finish the program today, uh, a little bit of Sam Jones versus Sam Jones. Uh, we're going to get into Ryan Duran obviously the inspiration for Wild Thing, Rick Vaughn and Major League, the movie. Uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates and what they're doing right now and you know talking about loogies in a game and really how how the whole position has changed from being veteran guys that could really go in there to teams that think they could simply take a pitcher wherever they are as a minor leaguer and bring them up for the first time and have them identify with that role right away. But before we do that, we're going to jump right into an interview I recorded with former Major League outfielder and pitcher Brooks Kieschnick. And Brooks, of course, came up as a outfielder first baseman in the Cubs organization, drafted number 10 overall, which we get into, but not only made the transition into a pitcher, but really became one of the first two-way players that we've seen in really this century. And obviously, if you look through history, and baseball reference, the whole thing, there were some two-way players in the 1800s and the early part of the 1900s. But here, here's a guy that actually did it as kind of a role player, that prototypical 25th man that can not only come up there, pinch hit, play the outfield, play first base, but can also pitch and you know throw a number of innings and kind of play a couple different roles in a bullpen. So I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Brooke, Brooks Kiesnick. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's John Pielle. I'm here with former Major League outfielder and pitcher Brooks Kieschnick. Brooks, what's going on, buddy?
1: Oh man, just uh, enjoying actually nice weather today. It's uh, been over 100 the last uh, few days. It's actually only 86 right now so I'm kind of enjoying the weather.
0: <laughs> so it's almost like it's a, it's a little too cool out there for you now, huh? actually <laughs> feels really good. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome, man. Brooks, of course, uh, you know, former Major League outfielder made the adjustment to pitching and kind of did the whole thing. We'll get into that in a little bit. But, you know, first, you know, you had the opportunity in 1993. You were selected number 10 overall first round draft pick of the Chicago Cubs. Take us back to that Time and, you know, what it meant to you to be drafted as high as you were and, you know, how things uh, ended up on the short term for you.
1: I mean, it was, it was really a great honor to be selected in the top ten. I had no idea what to expect going in. You know, I thought coming out of high school I would get drafted. I didn't even get drafted at all coming out of high school. And then I uh, went to the University of Texas. And I remember my freshman year uh, getting called into Coach Gus's office with him and uh, Darren Gus "You so saying, like, hey, we plan on you being here three years and being a first on draft pick. And it kind of blew my mind, you know, not even getting drafted out of uh, high school. So when I was at 10 pick overall, it, it was very exciting, very humbling, and, and I felt very honored.
0: Yeah, yeah, no question about it. And obviously, you know, you, you have your uh, your minor league career. You know, you get off to – you know, you have a couple good seasons there. And, uh, you know, 94, 95, you, know, you start to put up some power numbers. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your experience there and then when you finally make your major league debut. I
1: mean, it's, it's, a, it's a grind and it's definitely a culture shock going from uh, college baseball or even high school baseball into uh, pro baseball. I mean, it's uh, – a deal where now it's, it's your job which uh, you know i never approached it that way but a lot of people do um so it was a little bit of it was a little bit of a culture shock um i really enjoyed you know everybody said oh it must have been a grind in the minor leagues but i really actually enjoyed it. i mean you're with those guys you know pretty much eight months out of the year you're on anywhere from you know six to 17 hour bus rides with those guys so that becomes your family so i actually really enjoyed that that part of the game
0: yeah, no question about it. Of course, you debut with the Cubs in 1996. You got a you know, little cup of coffee, 25 games. And then, of course, the, next, the after 1997, you get, you get drafted in the expansion draft by the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. Tell us a little bit about that experience and your thoughts of going not only to a new team, but a team that was just starting, had no history to the franchise prior to you being part of it.
1: Well, I was, you know, at the time, I was really excited. I didn't think I was going to get my shot with the Cubs. Uh, I would have really loved, you know, maybe getting, you know, got one shot at 500 bats in the big leagues to see what I could do with them because, I mean, that was their whole deal. They wanted me to hit a bunch of home runs, and I think giving me a, you know, shot, maybe I could have. I don't know. I mean, nobody will ever know because I never got 500 bats in the big leagues. But um, so I was, I was excited about the opportunity to go to a brand-new franchise and, and uh, one that uh, – was just started out, so I saw a lot of opportunity there. And I think maybe you know, to the Cubs' defense, that they were a team that needed to try to win at that time and didn't have a chance. They didn't have time to try to develop somebody. They needed somebody to go in there right now. And I think, as you see this day and age, they actually, you know, first round their ethics, they're going to get their shot no matter what. I mean, that's the bottom line. Unless they just absolutely fall flat on their face, they're going to get a chance to go out there and do that. So with the Devil Rays at the time, now the Rays, but. I really saw a great
0: opportunity there. Yeah, and obviously, you end up, you know, you know, you didn't, you didn't get back to the major leagues with them, but you did with the Cincinnati Reds. What what was the turning point where you you decided, or maybe it was suggested to you, to make this transition into being a pitcher as well?
1: Well, I had a. Um really good uh season in 99 i was still with the rays but they put me on loan which i had never heard of before but i went to edmonton and had a had a really good season and i was hoping the rays would trade me because it was the angels at the time traded me to the angels because they were calling up guys that were hitting 230 maybe with five home runs and i was sitting there hitting close to 300 with 23 homers and couldn't get called up because i was on loan to them so i didn't know what that whole deal was about So I had a decent year that year. And then with the Cincinnati Reds, I had um, probably my best first half of of pro ball uh, I'd ever had. I think I had uh, 21 homers and 75 RBIs at the break. So it was one of those seasons where it it could have been a dream season, you know what I mean, if I stayed down there. I'm telling what kind of numbers I could have put up. But I got called up to the big leagues uh, at the All-Star break right after the minor league all-star game and uh, and basically sat there for three weeks and got like three at-bats. Wow. And so it was like one of those deals where you just go from being hot as a firecracker to not getting any at-bats the whole time so I could sit back down and never really got back on track as much. I think I finished up with I think 90 RBIs and uh, 23 homers or something like that. Maybe 25, I couldn't remember, but um, And you'd call back up at the end of the season and spend three more weeks up there and get three more at-bats. So it was one of those deals where it's like, I really got 12 at-bats, whatever it was. I was like 0 for 12 with a walk or something. I mean, it was one of those – it was like every fourth day or fifth day I'd get an at So It was kind of weird. It was almost like I wish they'd have left me down in the minor league and only put up some ungodly numbers, you know, for a year and kind of go from there. But it was – it was definitely a learning experience. And, you know, once we can free it, sign right on with the Rockies in 2001.
0: Yeah, and I tell you once again, this is John Pialli, I'm here with Brooks Kieschnick, a former outfielder and major league pitcher. Now, uh, you know, you end up, with, you know, you end up with the the Rockies. I think you end up pitching a, a game here and there. What game with, you know, with the Tampa Bay organization in '99, a game with the Colorado Springs in uh, 2001, and then you get a chance to pitch in 25 games in Triple A Charlotte for the White Sox in 2002. First, uh, what 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 led to you becoming a pitcher as well, and then uh, tell us. a little bit about your first experience getting a chance to uh, to pitch on a regular basis.
1: Well, in 2000, uh, the fall after 2001, it was really weird. I, I there wasn't a whole lot of takers. You know, I wasn't getting people knocking down my door for outfield first base. You know, and, or a guy to come off the bench or play whatever position and play. So I finally signed on with uh, Cleveland Indians to go to spring training in 2002, but I knew it was basically uh, there were Signing me, trying to maybe sell me to Japan, or definitely an insurance policy. They never had any uh, deal of me making their big league club. I I, I, you know, I pretty much knew that going in. And uh, when that didn't work, they said, "Hey, uh, we're going to send you down to minor league camp." And I go, and it was like the first cut, you know, big league camp. And I go, I said, "I'd rather have my my release. I want to pitch. I just been been thinking about it, and I'm like, I don't want to go bounce around the minor leagues again." and not ever give pitching a shot. And I wanted to do it while I was young enough to still be able to do it. So uh, that's kind of how I, I kind of I made the decision
0: on whether I was going to pitch or not. Yeah, no, now, was this something that came to you? You're like, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to use any, any of my God-given ability for this chance to pursue this dream. Was it, was it something that you had always thought in your mind that you, you had the ability to pitch?
1: Not to be, I knew that I could third strikes. I knew I could, uh, I had a lot of with my ball. And I knew I could change speeds. I mean, that was one the, I mean, that's, and obviously, you have to do a little bit more than that is, you know, by getting back in shape. But I, I in the back of my mind, I always thought I could pitch. You know what I mean? I, I wasn't going to overpower anybody. But, you know, I had to rely on hitting spots and uh, changing speeds.
0: No, no question about it. Once again, this is John P.L. I'm here with Brooks Kieschnick. Now, you know, what, what really ends up happening in 2003 and 2004, and I don't know how much you were foul on this nationally, but it was kind of revolutionary what you were doing, the ability to go out there and, and you know, be not only, a, not only a bench player, but a guy that could fill in here and there and hit, and also be that guy that could uh, that could also come in there and be not, not just a mop-up reliever, but an effective reliever. So were, you, were you aware of the, the ramifications of what, what you were going through, as far as being uh, revolutionary in any way?
1: You no, know, not in a way, not really. I remember uh, Peter Gammons did a piece set for the first thing training in 2003 when I was trying to make the club as a two-way player, basically. But uh, besides that, those are the, the greatest years of my pro ball career. It was I got to be a baseball player again. Yeah. That's, that's what I had so much fun doing in college. I was getting to play, you know, getting to pitch, getting to hit, getting to do everything, and just you know, be a ball player. And I think that was one of the, the you know, the funnest times in my career was for those two years in, in Milwaukee.
0: Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, it, you know, it probably takes you back to, uh, you know, Little League in high school where, you know, a lot of players have the ability to do, you know, they're all around athletes They could pitch, they could field, they could hit. And they, they get a chance to showcase everything they can do. Uh, and I tell you, it must have been, you know, it must have been amazing to be able to do that at the major league level.
1: Oh, it was a blast. I mean, it was. Uh, I was seriously, like, like you said, like a kid again. I mean, it was just. It was, it was like there was no pressure. I mean, it was just me going out there playing and having fun. And I think, uh, you know, hindsight, I wish i had have done that my whole career because it was it was that much fun and I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was a lot of work. I mean, I had to put in my time in the bullpen, and had to put in my time in the cage, and make sure I still got my running in as a pitcher. But man, it was just a, it was just a, a whole lot of fun, and I, I knew every day coming to the ballpark there – I wasn't going to pitch that day. I had a chance to hit. You know, it I mean, it was just, just an amazing time, and, and uh, i miss doing that every day because it was
0: a lot of fun. Now, no question about it. Once again, it's John Piali. I'm here with Brooks Kiechneck. Now, Brooks, you know, as as you end up going on, you know, you obviously, you know, you you held your weight as a hitter. So I, I don't know if this ever became a possibility. Did you ever consider going into uh, pitching full time?
1: I mean, that, that was basically, uh, even in 4 I had to make the team as a pitcher, and everything else that they, uh, if I did anything at the plate, was a bonus. So I basically had to go out there and show I could get people out and pitch in certain situations and and, um, and not just be a guy that was going to go out there and gobble up innings and, and hopefully get us some you know, big hits But everything. So basically, I had to make the team in 4 as a pitcher.
0: And then I tell you, one thing in two thousand three that that's impressive. You became the first p- player in Major League history to hit home runs as a pitcher, designated hitter, and pinch hitter in the same season. So back to you know what you were saying before, kind of being that you know little league, high school guy, kind of brings you back as a kid, the ability to do everything. Obviously, showed really in the two thousand three and two thousand four seasons.
1: Oh, it was, it was it was it was kind of crazy. You know, I think it made hitting a lot easier for me when I was pitching because it was one of those things where. You know, uh, coming up in any other organization, I felt like I had to get two two hits and one at bat. You know what I mean? Every time out there, you're afraid you're going to get sent down if you didn't get a hit every time up. And pitching-wise, I was more relaxed and just went out there and, and played the game, and I think that actually developed me to a better hitter.
0: No, absolutely, and as the game goes on, you know, you're in there, you go in there, you get a couple guys out, and, you know, you're, you're spotting the batting orders coming up. You didn't have any worry about coming out of the game. You knew you were definitely getting that next inning.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, that, that, that was no doubt about that. That was so funny, too, because there would be times where I'd warm up the bullpen, take the uh, – I had my own golf cart that they let me take around the backside. So I'd take my own golf cart around the backside, pin uh, it, and then go into the game to, to uh, pitch. Or, you know, I had to warm up real fast and uh, – uh, Going to the game and hopefully get somebody out because my the pitcher's order was coming, you know, right then and there as well. So it gave him just a lot of options, and I think he he used it to the best of his ability. And I think we we got a lot out of it those two years I was there.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Brooks, I want to thank you for having some time. I really appreciate you being part of the program, and let's stay in touch. Maybe I can get you on the program sometime in the near future.
1: Absolutely, anytime.
0: Hey, thanks a lot, man. And, of course, that was Brooks Kieschnick, former outfielder, pitcher for the Brewers, Cubs, um, Cincinnati Reds, amongst a couple other organizations. But we're going to take our first break at a program here. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show and MTR Radio Network. Back after this.
2: Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one.
0: You're listening to MTR
2: Radio. We have ignition you're about to listen to the hottest sounds
0: on mtr radio
1: and you're listening to mtr radio a flipping out radio production
0: and you've got it
2: hot 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 blaze blaze in the steel Always covering the most current topics
1: today. Check us out on mtrradio.com.
0: We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details.
1: What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or two
0: accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey.
1: That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work,
0: unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today. 609 609- 927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter
1: Red Rose Body Shop 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey 609-927-9454 Red Rose Body Shop is South
0: Jersey's Collision Specialist
1: 609-927-9454 or com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals
2: at Red Rose Body Shop.
0: Yeah, welcome back. John Pieli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, obviously, got a kind of a rapid fire here as we're going to get into some baseball topics, some things that I wrote about. JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. Feel free interactive program of course tweet at me at John underscore PLA of course I'll get back to you I've said this before a hundred times just uh keep doing it and we've had some great discussions over the last couple weeks about uh, a lot of different things whether it's managers in baseball whether it's uh you know certain uh things happening in a game with certain teams little Mets little Yankees little Phillies uh you know the whole thing and uh we're going to get into this right here, and one thing that has been a great story this year is the performance of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and you know the team that right now has the best record in Major League Baseball. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago how they had the third best record in Major League Baseball. The only two teams that were ahead of them were the Cincinnati Reds and the St. Louis Cardinals. They continue to play well, and they've uh, overtaken them. They got the best record in baseball, and to me, this is a team that I think is going to be able to hold up. You look at what's happened to them the last couple of years and they've struggled at certain points. Obviously, you look at manager Clint Hurdle doesn't have the greatest track record as far as being a solid winning manager. He's a decent manager, but like I said before, a lot of times talking about managers, they're a dime a dozen. You're only as good as the team that you have. And the Pirates have built themselves over the last couple of years with guys like Andrew McCutcheon and Neil Walker and A.J. Burnett, who they got over from the Yankees, and some, some of the other pitchers and hitters and stuff. Everybody's started to kind of work out and this has been a slow process, but they've gotten to a point where they could be considered right now one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. And you look at the 2013 Pirates and where they stand as far as they—they've already hit their high water mark where they were last year at I believe 16 games over 500, which they were last year uh, when they were 64, 62, and 46. Um, in uh, August of 2012. So they're they're obviously playing at a different level. They got veteran players like McCutcheon and Garrett Jones and Pedro Alvarez is kind of coming into his own as a power hitter, though he probably strikes out a little too much. The batting average could get a little higher. But a veteran like Russell Martin, the most interesting thing about this team is the way their bullpen is pitched. And you thought they were taking a step back last year when they made the trade with Boston, sending Joel Hanrahan to the Red Sox. They got a couple young players and Mark Melanson as a relief pitcher. And you thought that the Pirates were kind of going back to that rebuilding mode. And I remember writing an article for Bases Empty Blog in the middle of last year when the Pirates were talking about trading Hanrahan as kind of a salary dump type of deal. And some critics said, well, that's the way the Pirates do it. And I didn't understand it because you get to a point where you build a certain team to a point where you're ready to compete uh, and the Pirates in my opinion weren't in a position to start dumping players but that move turned out to pay off Jason Grilley stepped in to be the closer he's probably been one of the top pitchers in the National League as far as relievers Uh, 58 strikeouts and 34 and two-thirds innings at the time of uh, the article I wrote Mark Melanson's pitching to a less than one ERA and then you throw in other guys that like like a Justin Wilson who's a left-hand pitcher wasn't even on the roster really last year part of the mix He's helping out as a second lefty with Tony Watson, who's kind of a guy that's emerged. Uh, Vin Mazzaro has been a journeyman type of pitcher in a Royals organization with the athletics, has stepped in as a reliever. And you look at some, you know, all of a sudden they got guys that could kind of back it up. Their bullpen, which may not be so good as far as names, as far as relevancy, as far as the average Major League Baseball fan being able to know who these guys are. They have pitched well, and it's been a phenomenal job. And I give them credit for, for the way they put things together. Offensively, Starling Marte has certainly helped out, him being an everyday everyday option in left field with McCutcheon and Garrett Jones and Pedro Alvarez and some of the other guys that they've worked in. You know, one other strength has been this team's bench. They got a good veteran bench led by Gabby Sanchez and Brandon Inge and a couple other guys that have have kind of filled in pretty good. Jordy Mercer, uh, when he's not starting, uh, is, is a very good option as a shortstop second baseman. And this team has kind of put itself together. I think they can compete. I mean, Pedro Alvarez, remember, hit 30 home runs last year. He's on pace to probably hit more. Andrew McCutcheon, who has taken a step back, not necessarily not performing, but not at the elite status that he was last year. And this gets into my point that I was talking about the Pirates last year. They were a team that were carried by two players, McCutcheon and his MVP run he had last year, and A.J. Burnett, as far as him leading the staff and being the bona fide ace, they didn't really have a lot of support. And you look at the lineup this year, the the way that They've done a good job of supporting McCutcheon with a guy like Russell Martin, Alvarez, Neil Walker, Garrett Jones, and, and it's and, and in a lot of extents, in certain instances, it's players just taking that step to the next level. Same thing that's happened with the team starting pitching. Their starting pitching has been great this year, led by Jeff Locke, a guy who, of course, was not really an option in their rotation, a guy that they've had some faith in, they, they believed in. <laughs> But he has gone out there and pitched well. Burnett's been hurt, but you know Wandy Rodriguez has been hurt, so they've needed other guys to come in there and step up, and that has certainly been a factor to the Pirates getting to the level where they are this year. Their starting rotation is very deep. Garrett Cole, the number one overall pick a couple years ago, is a guy that's jumped in there and pitched very well. But the Pirates may not need him when they put their starting five together. Charlie Morton's back from Ch- Tommy John surgery. He has pitched well. It looks like he's going to keep his spot in there the bit one of the biggest biggest improvements has been uh, Francisco Liriano, who's come, come over as a free agent. You thought he was done after last year. I mean, he's pitching to a, an ERA in the mid-twos and certainly gives them a top three with Locke and a healthy Burnett. You throw in a Rodriguez and a Charlie Morton, and this rotation looks like it could compete with most, te- most teams in Major League Baseball. Jenmar Gomez has been kind of a fifth starter, kind of a replacement guy, but you know you slide him over to the bullpen and it just provides them more depth. So contrary to what some pl- people have said, that they need to go out there and get themselves an ace starting pitcher, yeah, it wouldn't hurt. But listen, I think this rotation could, could not only win the NL East but win playoff games the way it's set up. And, uh, you know, good thing for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Certainly a team that hasn't finished over 520 years since they had the Barry Bonds and Jim Leland and Bobby Bonilla and Andy Vance, like, and Doug Dre back in the whole thing. So, you know, it's kind of a good story to see with, with the hopes that this team could kind of jump into, uh, you know, contention and hopefully stay there uh, over the course of the season. But once again getting into different things of course bases empty blog I talk about stuff going on now and stuff that happened in the past but you know you remember the really what was the inspiration of Wild Thing and the Major League movie and Rick Vaughn and Charlie Sheen and the whole thing was a pitcher for the Yankees in the late uh, 50s by the name of Ryan Durand, and he was a guy that had struggled with his eyesight he also uh, drank a lot and uh, you know a great thing he ends up doing towards the end of uh, you know after his playing career he uh, he, he, he graduates Alcoholics Anonymous, gets that whole thing out of his system and becomes, uh, you know, really, a, really a, a positive influence in regards to what we think about, uh, you know, preventing alcohol abuse and stuff like that. But here's a guy that really was that whole prototypical wild thing guy. He had the thick glasses. Uh, you know, when he, he, he threw he throw the ball, he didn't really know where it was going. He got as part of his routine. One of his warm-up tosses was automatically to the backstop. It's kind of an in, intimidation type of thing and you look at the guy's career and what he's done what he did uh he, he was a guy that bounced around the big leagues a little bit no question about it he ended up uh uh you know with a couple different teams ends up with the yankees he was traded in the trade that sent billy martin a second baseman over to the kansas city athletics which you know we all remember you know those of us who do remember not me of course because i'm not that you know not that i wasn't around that time but um he was a big factor in that deal, and he knew that Billy martin was pissed off that the Yankees ended up trading him. but he ends up uh, emerging a kind of a guy that was, was up there uh you know a lot of you know a lot of friggin uh walks a lot of strikeouts uh you know of course with the you know with, with the teams that he ended up with and you know he makes the transition to being a reliever in the end of the 1950s and has really two of the sol- two real solid seasons one in particular in 1957 i'm sorry 1958. Um, and, and ends up putting up some, some tremendous numbers as really one of the first of, of the big time relievers. And you remember, obviously, what's happened with the state, save statistic and what, what it's become nowadays. But in 1958, uh, you know, the Yankees end up losing the World, I'm sorry, winning the World Series that year against the Milwaukee Braves. He pitched to a 193 RA in three games in the postseason, striking out 14 guys in nine and a third innings. And this is in the World Series. Uh, Back in coming out of a season where he was six and four, 2.02 ERA, led the league in 20 saves at 87 strikeouts at 75 and two-thirds innings, he became that prototypical eighth and ninth inning guy, the guy that you were going to bring in to be the closer. And of course, you know he really, he kind of became a flash in the pan. Those couple years, he was never able to uh, regain or keep. The type of uh, the those numbers, though he had some success, he was traded to the Angels, the expansion Angels in 1961, joining his teammate in the 1960 Yankees, Eli Gruba, who of course was a guest on the past ball show, and he ends up go, going it back trying to be a starter. It didn't really work out, and uh, you know by the time he ended up at age 36 in 1965, uh, he was prou- he was pretty much done. Splitting the year between the Phillies and the Washington Senators, but uh, you know some people know obviously to follow the major league series and everything but the character rick wild, wild thing vaughn was really uh was was kind of uh, in in remembrance of ryan duran who was a pitcher for the yankees at that time had those big thick glasses and of course ryan sandberg the hall of fame second baseman his first name he was actually named after ryan duran so some different things to think about in regards to ryan duran but you know staying in this uh Actually, we're going to skip over this. We're going to get right into, uh, you know, the loogie. And we've talked about, you know, what, what a left-hand-only, one-out guy really has for a Major League Baseball team and their role and what he really uh, – what do you expect out of a guy. And uh, to me, I think it's too much to expect when you're talking about a, a uh, left-hand pitcher that doesn't have a lot of Major League experience that may have, not, may have not had that role before. And you're seeing sometimes, you know, you look at, uh, you know, in the minor leagues, they got a left-handed guy – maybe 21, 22 years old an A ball or double A and kind of just getting used to doing that role early on in their career because that's where they, they they project them to be but from that pitcher it's obviously not the best option because if you're in A ball and you're only getting one left hand ha- better, header out, I mean what's the chance that you're going to make that transition all the way up to the major leagues when you got all the competition with guys who have been starters guys who have been uh, closers guys who have pitched multiple innings so that's obviously a tough task to ask for somebody that's in that position. But you look at really what the the best uh, loogies, and obviously you think of Tony La Russa as being the uh, the guy that really brought this thing in, not just with the St. Louis Cardinals, but prior to that with the Oakland Athletics and, of course, the Chicago White Sox. But the one thing that had, had in common really with all these pitchers that he used, whether it was uh, Mark Ripsinski a couple years ago or Rick Honeycutt, uh, prior to that and, of course, with the, with the White Sox, with guys like Jerry Gleaton and Kevin Hickey and Juan Augusto, is that you, you use veteran pitchers that have been around a while and may have had different roles. Honeycutt was a starter. Uh, you look at Jesse Orozco, who was a closer. You look at some other guys that have have done the job before. Um, You know, uh, whether it's uh, Javier Lopez, Jeremy Affelt, you know, guys, contemporary guys that really had different kind of roles before, but learned how to pitch and kind of do what they do now. Darren Oliver, Arthur Rhodes, Mike Stanton, Jim Cott was a great example of a guy who was a very good pitcher, 283 wins in his career, but had that role as that left. You know, hand pitcher that could get only one batter out uh, you, you know you need a veteran to do that and I, and I, I think you look at left-handers in the game there aren't even that many left-handed closers or all this Chapman Tim Collins Rex brothers Glenn Perkins they're, they're the only guys that are left-handers that are, that are doing that job guys like Johnny Venters and Erico Flaherty are kind of exceptions to the rule two flame-throwing left-handers that you know can go out there and be closers if you needed them to be but could also be seventh and eighth inning guys and gives the Braves when they're healthy of course they both have Tommy Johnson surgery, which is unfortunate, but when, when they're healthy, the Braves know that they could use one of the guys to pitch the eighth inning and another guy in a particular spot to get a, a left-hand batter out or two. So certainly different things that go on here, but we're going to take our last break of the program, and uh, you know I do want to thank Brett Saberhagen, Bob Kendrick, Brooks Kieschnick and we're going to end this program on a somber note. So we'll be back after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRMedia.com. Welcome back. This is the Past Ball Show. John Pialy right here on the MTR Radio Network. And if you're a baseball fan and you follow the news, you'll find out that there was a sad uh, story out the other day that former Major League pitcher Justin Miller uh, passed away at the age of 35 and, uh, down in Florida and Justin, of course, had a had a decent career in the major leagues, pitching for the the Florida Marlins as well as some the Toronto Blue Jays, San Francisco Giants, and Los Angeles Dodgers up until 2010. And of course, was on those teams in before the, the Florida Marlins in 2007 and 2008 that knocked the Mets out of postseason contention. And uh, you know, Justin Miller had to, uh, was nice enough to be part of the past ball show and uh, you know gave gave me a nice interview and gave me a chance to speak with him and uh, you know you think of all the different players that I've had on my show a lot of them are more you know up there in age and stuff like that and you know, it's sad to see that, a, you know, a player ends up being taken at age 35. And, you know, one of the last things I really expected to to report on the basketball show. we got a guy that, of course, is known for the Justin Miller rule with all the tattoos on his arm. He had to wear the sleeves and stuff like that. But uh, certainly sad to hear about his passing. And we're going to play his interview just as a, as a tribute to him. Um, so, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy it. And once again, rest in peace. Condolences to his family. Justin? Yeah. Hey, what's going on, John PLA Passball Show on TR Radio Network. What's going on? Hey, How are you? Good man. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, for sure. No problem. Hey, listen, man. First, uh, you know, take a couple minutes. Tell us a little bit about the uh, baseball, softball, and personal training, uh, you know, academy you got going on.
2: Um, we just set it up. It was one of those things. You know, uh, I hung him up from baseball. My son just graduated. So um, I, I had about the same education he had. So, what, what, what do I know how to do? I know how to play baseball. So we went ahead and go went and I, I set it up with that. Um, met a met a buddy who a mutual friend that was uh, doing personal training in the same facility where I'm, same complex where I'm at. We got together and just trying to rock it out from there.
0: Yeah, so so, so how, how's that going, man? If you want to? I'll just give you a quick plug right here. Tell us a little bit about okay. you know how you know if you you know if you're interested in it and stuff like that, where it's located and you know how to get. Yeah, we're great.
2: we're in uh, Clearwater, Florida, corner um, of Drew and 19, uh, right across from the Phillies uh, Spring Training Complex. Um, you know, again, we we're 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 getting to the point where you know we're. Uh, we're just having fun doing it with it. You know, I think the one thing that we're really trying to separate our, ourselves with is the uh, the mental approach. You know, I can I tell I all the parents is, you know, you can you, treat physical so much, but if you're not backing it up with the mental, what, what good is the physical for? Because ultimately we're trying to create good, successful human beings no matter what they're doing.
0: Yeah, no question, man. I'll tell you, you bring up a great point there because you see a lot of – Uh, players as they come up, whether they end up making the major leagues or not, but you you look at a lot of players that have a ridiculous amount of god gifted talent, and you know, because of you know, issues about you know, dealing with adversity and stuff like that, you know, the mental approach to the game really ends up being their downfall. So, I think that's an excellent point.
2: I I was one of those people, you know, like, um. You know, it's, it's not that the mental part wasn't there for for my taking. It was just that I didn't take advantage of the mental part. I just tried to get by with the physical part. And the funny thing is, you know, the, when, when I got to the big leagues, my first first outing, first appearance, I hit my first two batters because I forgot how to throw baseball. And, you know, that, that that has really stuck with me. So, you know, we really try to just let, let the kids know, you know, that it starts right now, you know, it's the mental, the rhythm, and the focus.
0: No, no question about it. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Justin Miller. Now, when you're talking about the, the mental approach, I mean, is this, is this, is this something where, like, is, is it necessarily something that is by the book? Or are you more, like, you using, know, let's say, like, your personal experience to try to pass it on to other people?
2: I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, um, I, I've always been really big into um, visualization, um, following the breath. After I played in Japan, um, I came back, and I think my my stuff uh, physically had diminished, but I was a way better pitcher than I was before I went to J- Japan. I had better stuff before I went to Japan, before it harder. But we getting my butt pounded out there. When I went out to Japan. I, I really learned about the mental part of baseball, and uh, I think for it, um, every kid. That we, I want to them as, teach him as individuals, not as uh, as as a whole. You know, so it's really getting to know the kid and seeing what gets him ticking. But you know, I think it starts with the development of a routine.
0: Yeah, no question, man. And, uh, you know, def- definitely keep up the good work with that. Now, you know, on, on under your, your playing career, you came up, you know, obviously made your Major League debut with the Toronto Blue Jays in 2002. Did, you right. know, as, as far as being a starting pitcher, did, did you really yep. feel like that was you, or did you see yourself eventually becoming <laughs> a relief pitcher?
2: Um, I, I think uh, mentally I was always a relief pitcher. Um, okay. I'm definitely one of those guys that just needed the phone to ring Less time to think, grab the ball, and start going. Uh, you know, as a starter, you, your routine becomes four days. It starts after your after your last pitch of that game, and you start your routine, and you work it for the next four days. As a reliever, you break that routine down into whatever five, 10, 15, 20 minutes every day. So, you know, I definitely think I always had the mentality of a reliever, and I, I knew eventually it was going to happen, and I think just the uh, uh, the, the, when I had surgery after my rookie year, you know, they kind of just sped up the process of that
0: happening. Yeah, no question, and I'll tell you, you're, you know, you're, the the numbers really back up what you just said, because obviously you yeah. enjoyed your be- your best major league success, you know, with the Marlins, 2007, 2008, a little bit with the Giants afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you did you eventually? I guess I guess you fell into you know your role, your niche. Of like where it was right. in the bullpen, like you said, you know, you you know the phone rings. You know when you're going to get ready to go. So, so sure. that that was that was kind of your whole deal, right? You're just you know you were just re- kind of ready for the call. You go in and get the right, right? It.
2: Yeah, and, and the thing is too, you know, as, as you become a believer and you start knowing the situations of the games, um, you you have a pretty idea, good idea of your role in the bullpen, and and when the phone rings, you know you usually know if it's going to be you or not. Um, and, then again, what I really appreciate out of the bullpen was how we all relied on each other. You know, if I come in with the runner on third base, right-hander up, lefty on deck. I One out, my job was to strike the guy out. If I didn't strike him out, I was going to walk him, and then I was going to let the lefty come in and do the job. So um, I, re- I really remember in 2007, our, our, our bullpen in Florida really came together like that Where we never gave into a hitter And if we didn't get the job done We had all the confidence in the person Coming in behind us to, to back that up Because uh, especially when I was with Florida You know, you know you're too many Too much of a right-handed specialist But that's kind of where my job was there you know. And I, I loved it because Every day I could pitch, you know
0: yeah, and, and I'll tell you. So I, I would, I would guess, I would uh, would assume that that was probably the best bullpen that you were part of that two thousand and seventeen, right?
2: Right, right. Yeah, you know, I, we've been, I think I've been a part of good, a lot of good bullpens, but just um, you know, I think in the way that I was personally utilized then was was the best suited for me. You know, and now as, as your career goes, you know, teams need you to do different things, and you adjust, but. Um, there's something to be said about going to the ballpark every day. I think you're going to get in there for an hour or two, you know. And I was always a guy that liked um, appearances over innings, you know. Yeah. So I took, I took pride in having those appearances.
0: Yeah, no question. Now, you know, going back to that 2017, of course, you know, you, you may or may not know, I'm, I'm a pretty good Mets fan. How did it feel? During that last series of the season, right, for you guys right. to go out there and knock the Mets out of the playoffs.
2: Well, you know the funny thing is was, I mean, I I remember that last day going to the field. It felt like me too. The only thing you could compare to was like a boxer going into the into the ring, you know. But the funny thing with that whole way that it panned out was a huge fight we had the day before. Yeah. You know, so so we had this. Yeah, I think that you guys had to win two out of three, and we ended up winning two out of three. But uh, for the second game, I mean, it was just a huge old brawl. So that it all came down to to one one game, winner take all. You know, for for in your guys' situation, and you know, we were trying to play the spoilers, and uh, you know, it, it was pretty. It was a pretty feeling. It felt like we were going to the playoffs
0: if we won. Yeah, yeah, and actually, that's what I wanted to touch on. Was it, you know, it, uh, for a team that you know, obviously, you know, maybe maybe underachieved, maybe didn't live up to all expectations. Right. You know, obviously, every team wants to get to the postseason. Did did for you sure. have that like like that energy as you would have towards like a playoff game going into you know not only that last game but yeah. that entire three game series?
2: Yeah, the, the the whole series was was. I mean, the, the way the coaching staff handled it, the way they brought it in, you know, um, they, we, we played to, to, to do exactly what we did, which was knock the mess out of the playoffs. You know, we played every game to win, but uh, the, the intensity level was up. The uh, concentration was up, and I think everybody was just really, really focused because it was something that not too many of us had, 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 had really experienced because we were a younger team.
0: Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you, like, you know, from the team, you know, before with Joe Girardi as the manager in 2006, right. and obviously uh, uh, Freddie Gonzalez took over there. I mean, they, they both sure. seem to have the mentality of, listen, if if, if there's a team that's winning, Let's see how let's let's see what winning's like. Watch it, absorb right, it, take it. Right, out. right. And I think it really rubbed off on a lot of the Marlin players. You know, unfortunately, they, they you know just, you're not looking at a playoff team in that time. But I think there was a right. lot of players that ended up taking that with them, and you know, well, as they moved yeah. on, probably became more more winning ball players.
2: Right. That, no, that's a great point because you get see those Marlins teams. You know, guys that have come on gone on to other organizations after um they've fairly you know they've had a lot of good players come through that organization um uh, whether it be trades early for a young prospect that develops into good players or if they're drafted um and it, it, it gave everybody a sense of what what it what it what, what it could feel like you know again like i said winning that last game felt like we were going to the playoffs
0: yeah no question man once again this is john pielli i'm here with former major league pitcher justin miller now you know I, I I get into this a lot with players, particularly ones that you know career ends up kind of going downhill. They end up they end up finishing up their career. Tell us a little right. bit about the end. You know you end up f- play, pitching for the Dodgers yeah. in 2010. You know you pitched in yeah. minor leagues in 2011. Was there right. any, any a point where you just like listen? I'm I'm just kind of done. Yeah, I think
2: that going into into 2011, it's not necessarily I was going into it thinking I'm done. Um, I, I signed with Seattle Mariners. And, uh, I ended up having an out of my contract at the end of the first month. Um, I, I live in Tampa, Florida. I was in Tacoma, Washington, you know, I married with two children. I felt like I could have been in Hawaii or Japan, you know, as far as a flight that is if I ever wanted to get my family out there. Um, so when when the opportunity came at the end of the first month for me to to go explore other options, you know, I, I, I took it and um, ended up hooking up with Texas right away. And, you know, what happened was basically I, I'll i never forget. We're, I was pitching in Las Vegas. Um, they had me closing and they go out there. And for the first two months, I been throwing really well. Then one day I, I, I couldn't go strike. I couldn't figure out why. Nothing was hurting. And... Long story short, I ended up, I, I, I wasn't feeling the ball in my hand. You know, the thoracic outlet syndrome, it's coming up a lot all over the place now. And
0: yeah, it's what Chris Carpenter was, has.
2: Right, right, exactly. And it was one of those things where I wasn't necessarily feeling the pain. Um, I could play catch, but once I got going to 100%, Um, I wasn't feeling the baseball, and I wasn't putting that together in my head. I was just like, what's going on with me? You know, I just can't throw a strike. But it it ended up being a little more than just that. So the the Rangers ended up releasing me, signed with the Dodgers. Uh, Same thing happened over there. And, you know, I went into the offseason kind of rehabbing and feeling good. But um, it was one of those things where if if a team called me up and said, hey, we want to sign you, I would have signed. Um, I had a couple offers for, you know, tryouts. I played 15 years. I really didn't feel the need to, to try out, you know. <laughs> I felt like 15 years of tryouts was enough. So um, I just took it for what it was, and, you know, I'm completely content on, on what I'm doing now.
0: Yeah, no question about it, man. Now, last thing, man, uh, you're you're known for, you know, the tattoos that you got <laughs> on your arm. Right. You know, how, how did it feel when you when you actually had to wear long sleeves over your tattoos, that, you know, did that really affect you pitching at all, or is that something you no, were kind of get used not,
2: to? No, not at all. You know, there, it was, there, there were certain days when I would pitch, you know, if I have the option to not wear sleeves, what I, of course not. But, you know, at the end of the day, breaking break any records? No, but I made a rule, and that's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> not too many people should make a rule, you know. So um, it's one of those things that I thought it would probably happen. You know, I don't know. How come I, I, I'm the only one singled out? You know, but uh, it is what it is, and you know the way the Under Armour makes those things now; yeah, it's pretty comfortable.
0: Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Justin, I want to thank you for having some time today. Appreciate having a chance to talk to you. Hopefully, I could get you on the show sometime in the near future. Anytime, brother. I really appreciate it. Yeah, anytime, man. Best of luck with the uh, with the camp. Right. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. All right, take care. And obviously a sad story with the passing of Justin Miller. And I'll tell you, one thing I do want to get into as we finish up here is just uh, I I don't think anybody really relates to it the way I do. Everything that I put together with the compilation of all the interviews and stuff like that. And, you know, it honestly becomes kind, kind of a family type of thing. And, you know, even though I don't know these people on a personal level. Uh, just the opportunity to talk baseball with them and, you know, be part of, you know, something that I've built and I'm kind of proud of, uh, you know, certainly makes it a sad you know situation when something like this happens. I mean, it's not obviously, you know, that personal with me because... You know, obviously, I don't know a lot of these players on a on an everyday basis. But, yeah, it is kind of a sad story. And, you know, hopefully you find the, the, the humility in the whole thing and me playing the interview. And, obviously, condolences go out to Justin's family and the whole thing. But uh, thanks a lot for being a part of the program. We'll get back with you next week. John Pialy, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network.